This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 66. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamramiyasha, and this week, to mentally distance ourselves from the impending cold and the freezing weather, we're going to read a manga that's set in the desert where there's nothing but hot sun. Envious hot warm sun. We are talking about Sandland by Akira Toriyama. Part of our ongoing celebration of Shonen Jump's 50th anniversary, Sandland is special because not only is this its 18th anniversary, which means it's old enough to drink, woo, good for you, Beelzebub, but it's also the 15th anniversary of its original U.S. publication, since Sandland was originally published in the U.S. back in 2003. So this is a very timely anniversary-ish episode. Mm, let's let's pretend we totally did that on purpose. Well, I knew that this was a, an appropriate time to cover it. So, <laughs> okay, fine. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we get on to that, we have some news to talk about, and so uh, we actually have, I guess, to start off, uh, we have two book scan list to talk about uh love if you want to talk about the first one yeah so the first book scan list we're going to discuss is the top 20 book scan list for adult graphic novels for the month of october 2018 and my hero academia does extremely well with the adult crowd because seven my hero academia Books are in the BookScan Top 20 Graphic Novels for Adults. Out of 12 manga volumes overall, ranked highest among the manga is My Hero Academia Volume 15, which comes in at number 2 on the list. Then it's followed by Volume 2 of My Hero Academia Vigilantes at number 5. At number 7, we've got My Hero Academia Volume 1. Volume 14 comes in at number 8. Then at number 12, we got Volume 2. And Volume 3 is at number 18, with Volume 1 of Vigilantes coming in at number 20. Lots of My Hero Academia, both kids and adults alike, adore this series. But MHA is not the only manga that adults are enjoying, because we've got Tokyo Ghoul RE Volume 7 at number 10. We've got the Berserk Official Guidebook at number 11. We got Junji Ito's Frankenstein Junji Ito Story Collection at number 14. We've got the final volume of Bleach, Volume 74, at number 15. We've got The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, Volume 4, at number 16. Lots of different manga on the book scan list for adults for October 2018. Yeah, once again, My Hero Academia just pretty much just dominates most of the list, as is the case with the uh, October Top 20 manga list, uh, where we basically have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That's that's insane. Yeah, that's over half of the top twenty manga is My Hero Academia. Yeah. Um. So basically, we have Volume Fifteen at number one, uh, Vigilantes Volume Two at number two, Volume One at number three, Volume Fourteen at number four, Volume Two at number seven, 
uh, Volume 3 at number 11, Vigilantes Volume 1 at number 12, Volume 4 at 13, Volume 5 at 14, Volume 13 at 15, and finally Volume 6 at 17. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that My Hero Academia is popular. So much MHA! Weird gap between the first seven volumes and the most recent volumes from 13 on up. Where's the love for volumes 8 through 12, fans? Though I think the real reason why we don't see those volumes in the top 20 is because we're seeing a lot of the early volumes and a lot of the recent volumes. So that stuff in the middle gets lost there because we get a lot of new people discovering MHG for the first time buying the early books. And then we got all the people who have already been invested in the series and buying all the new stuff, buying the newest books. So those middle books are lost in the shuffle between those two big audiences. Yeah, so 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 yeah, watch out. Volumes eight through eleven are gonna make the uh, make the list sometime in the next like few months or so. I'm sure um, as people catch up. Uh, but as for the rest of the list, we have Tokyo Ghoul Re Volume Seven at number five. Uh, we have the Berserk Official Guidebook at number seven, along with uh, Junji Ito's Frankenstein at number eight. Volume seventy four of Bleach, the final volume of Bleach, at number nine. Uh, volume four of The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess at Volume 4. And, ooh, here we go. Volume 20 of Blue Exorcist at number 16. I don't think we see that title on this list too often at all. Um, Not that I remember anyway. As well as Volume 1 of the original Tokyo Ghoul at number 18. And here we go. Uh, Volume 6 of The Promised Neverland at number 19, which is, that's always nice to see Promised Neverland on here. And at number 20, we have Volume 26 of Food Wars. That's a that's a nice little addition there. Yeah, um again, My Hero Academia pretty much dominates over half the list along with a few nice returns to the list with uh Promised Neverland and Food Wars and uh Blue Exorcist. So, you know, not not a bad list. Mhm. And nice to see that Bleach finished strong in sales with the final volume doing so well. Mhm. But yeah, um I think it's going to be a long time before we can get away from the cultural phenomenon that is My Hero Academia. Yep, it's been added alongside One Punch Man and Tokyo Ghoul to the big hot manga properties dominating the US scene right now. Yeah, I remember the good old days when we just couldn't stop talking about Tokyo Ghoul. I mean, we still can't talk stop talking about Tokyo Ghoul. I mean, it has still two spots on that top 20. So while the fervor isn't as strong as it used to be before, it's still pretty popular. This is true. Um, But I think that's about it for our list, so now we can move on to some serialization news. That's right, and like most of you, I'm sure, who are Dragon Ball fans, I am very excited for Dragon Ball Super Broly. Same. And Toei is going all out with making a bunch of tie-in promotional materials for the movie. Because Shueisha's website for its Jump J-Books imprint is listing that they're going to be releasing a Dragon Ball Super Broly novel on December 14th, the same day the film opens in Japanese theaters. Written by Masatoshi Kusakabe, who was the writer on Naruto, Mission to Protect the Waterfall Village, and Naruto Innocent Heart, Demonic Blood novels. So the novel will adapt the story of the film, and... Yeah, that's basically all there is to say about that. 
uh, Wiz has previously published this writer's novels in English before, these Naruto novels. I remember seeing that Mission Protect the Waterfall Village novel around. So, who knows? We might get this novel, too. But, even if we don't, it's neat to see that Dragon Ball is going to be represented in prose and that Toei and Shueisha are looking for all sorts of tie-in opportunities to tell this story. No doubt that Toyotaro's manga will probably adapt this, too. So, we will see. The next couple of months, we're going to be inundated with this Broly story. Oh, yeah. It's pretty much going to be everywhere. But moving on from that to some some new manga coming, uh, it seems that uh, Rei Hiroe, author of uh, Black Lagoon and other titles, uh, will be having a new manga premiere in Monthly Shonen Sunday, as it was announced in the December issue of said magazine. Uh, the series is temporarily titled uh, 341 uh, Sentodan, or roughly translated to uh, 341 Combat Team. Uh, this series will premiere in spring 2019 and apparently is a part of the 10th anniversary celebrations for Monthly Shonen Sunday in particular. Uh, the quote-unquote youth war drama takes place on the chaotic front line of countries at war. A certain person stands at the head of a combat team that is sweeping across the land. And the story follows the strong and fleeting emotions of the young people whose lives are scattered on the battlefield. So probably a pretty somber uh, sort of story coming our way, obviously. Key visual for it looks pretty nice. I really like the cover, uh, the colors that uh, Hiroe uses for this image. Mm-hmm. These characters look a little young. Are these child soldiers? Is this going to be a child soldiers manga? Oh, man. We will see. Heroi is not Heroi is not shy about tackling dark subject matter. Honestly, I if um if, if they haven't yet, I'm surprised that that kind of thing isn't already like something that they tackle in Black Lagoon. Oh, they sort of well, it's not child cho- soldiers. They're like children sold into sex slavery and that's an arc mm. in Black Lagoon. Yeah, that sounds like something Black Lagoon would tackle. Um but yeah, um, it's always kind of it. On one hand, it's it's nice to see Hudaway come out with new stuff, but at the same time, I really hope Black Lagoon like actually finishes. <laughs> yeah, that's my thought. It's cool that he's coming out with a new manga, but I would really like him to continue Black Lagoon and work that story towards some sort of conclusion. Otherwise, I wish that it would have just ended with Roberta's blood trail. But yeah. That's a cool new thing that Ray Hero is doing, and also something that's cool and new. Our new manga that are going to be debuting in the second issue of Tezukomi, the Tesca Tribute Magazine. And we've got some new series, this time based on Tesca's uh, Luna Flies Into the Wind, his Higawaji series, and Boku no Sengoku. Uh, and the first up is uh, a work by Atsuko Ishida, who is formerly an animator on Ramla Half and Magic Knight Rayard. And she's adapting Tesca's Run Wa Kaze Nunaka for the latest issue of the magazine under the title Hatsukoi Wa Kaze Nunaka. And the original story told the story of a young teenage boy who falls for a girl in a poster he sees and takes it home with him to put on his wall. And then he treats the girl like his girlfriend and interacts with her like 
he's real. So this is a manga about otaku published as a one shot in 1979 before otaku. <laughs> this really became a trend. But yeah, this idea of nerds objectifying and worshiping fictional characters like they're real people and considering them their girlfriend or waifus. Tesca was very ahead of his time. So this is going to be like a modern update on the story, which is quite relevant for the current Oh, yeah. And then we've got a manga about Hige Oyaji, otherwise known as Mustachio, if you read uh, English editions of Astro Boy. At least that's one of the names that has been given to him in adaptations over the years. But he's a recurring character in various Tezuka stories. He's a recurring character in the star system alongside, like, Rock and a bunch of other character designs that Tezuka liked to reuse. And his most notable appearances, to me, are like an Astro Boy, where he's Astro Boy's teacher and stuff. But he's also in Blackjack and MW and Rainbow Parakeet and stuff. And so the Ohige series by Sanke Yamada that'll be in Tezukomi is going to basically focus on the character and some of his hijinks. And then a third one shot, it debuting the second issue, is by the Spanish comic artist Kenny Ruiz of Magic Seven fame. And Son Goku Nekonomaki is a new version of Huzuka's take on China, on uh, Journey to the West. So this original Tezuka version was published in Manga King from 1952 to 1959. And this is basically an updated version of Toriyama's take on that classic story. And also, the second issue of Tezukomi is including a Princess Knight medal, which looks really rad, and each medal has a unique serial number. Very cool. Yeah, so lots of cool new manga debuting in Tezukomi. I'm quite intrigued with Loon Flies Into the Wind and the Ohige series in particular. I hope that at some point all of these cool new manga that are debuting in Tezukomi get translated and brought over here because these all sound like wonderful tributes to the work of this guy. Um, but unfortunately, we have a few series that are um, that are ending. Yes, the manga world gives us and it takes away. Yeah, because unfortunately, it seems that uh, Keiji Amatsuka's Seiji Tanaka manga has ended by the time you're listening to this podcast in the 50th issue of Weekly Shonen Jump. This is a jump start that we talked about a few months ago at this point uh, on the podcast, along with uh, Alice and Tayo. Uh, hopefully, it looks like Alice and Tayo is going to be the one out of those two that's going to keep continuing because uh, Seiji Tanaka sure isn't. We'll see. Let's see. Uh, it looks like it clocked out at about twenty chapters or so. So, you know, I guess that that's about the average length for something that's. You know, that unfortunately gets axed. That's like, what, three volumes? Somewhere around those lines. Yeah. Alice and Tayo isn't doing so hot either, so I would not be surprised if that was also on its way out. That's unfortunate. Really had a lot of hope for that series, too. Maybe at some point, uh, Seiji Tanaka could be a, another Cancel Jump series that we talk about on the show at some point or some, uh, or another, because I, I really enjoyed the first couple of chapters, I know that, you know, you and, like, Maxi weren't so super hot on it, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I don't know, I, I really I really enjoyed it for just how stylish it was in, in certain places, and I really thought the story was actually kind of interesting, but uh, 
you know that that that's another podcast for another day. Mm-hmm. But that is not the only thing that has ended because Akira Amano's Elf Live has also reached its conclusion after entering its final arc in February. The final chapter was posted last Monday, the first Monday of November or October 30th or whatever. And yeah, so the manga was uh, running for about five years. It debuted on Jump Plus. Well, Jump Live, which was Jump Plus predecessor in August 2013. And the series is currently being published by Viz Media. You can read it for free on the Shonen Jump website. And yeah, it seemed like it ran for over 10 volumes. It had a good run and it reached uh, its conclusion naturally. Mm. Well, that's that's good at least. Well, even more stuff is ending, of course. And uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is Starving Anonymous ending. That was published in Kadantra's E-Young magazine, the 70th and final chapter of the manga was published kind of on the, on the same day as uh, the final chapter of El Live. But yeah, Kanaansha is releasing the series digitally. Uh, you can buy the first couple volumes over on there uh, on various digital-only platforms. But it seems that it's a completed series now, and you can now look forward to collecting the whole thing when uh, Kanaansha USA continues publishing the remaining volumes. <laughs> It seems like it'll end up with seven overall volumes, since the most recent volume that Kodansha Japan published was the sixth, back in September. Mm, okay, well, nice shorter, short-ish series. I, I like those, so yeah, those are always nice. And uh, that's about it for you know everything ending at this time. But uh, we do have a series going on hiatus. Um, but I, I would say, unfortunately, but um, it's actually not a, it's not as bad as you would think. So. Uh, recently, we talked about on the show, again, amongst Kodansha USA's digital-only licenses and whatnot, uh, one of them was, Is Kichijoji the Only Place to Live? That series is going to be going on hiatus, but it's so that uh, Hirochi Maki can uh, basically prepare for a new manga serialization. So, uh, finally, a hiatus that isn't due to failing health. Uh, that's always nice to see. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, for fans of Kichijoji, I'm sure this is a, a bit of a bummer, but at least it's not because, you know, Maki doesn't need time to rest because of any kind of grueling, like, work schedules or anything, so. Yeah, they're not dying, so that's very nice to hear. Uh, it's really sad that we, like, have to say that, but I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 still a good thing nonetheless. But that about does it for Serialization News. So now let's talk about a, a licensing announcement from Soul Press. Because they've picked up quite a few big things. First off, they've licensed Funa's Saving 80,000 Gold in Another World for My Retirement. The light novel series and its manga adaptation. And they've also picked up uh, Ryukishi 07 and Yukari Higa's Harem Royale When the Game Ends Manga. And these are the first titles from Kodansha that the company has picked up. And so the first volume of Saving 80,000 Gold in Another World for My Retirement is going to release on March 4th, 2019. And it's about a girl who falls off a cliff and gets transported into a medieval European fantasy world. 
And during a battle with some wolves that almost cost her her life, she realizes that she has the ability to come and go between Earth and this new world. So she decides to use this ability as much as she can to save up for her retirement. And so she sets her sights on saving 80,000 gold coins. And the story is all about her schemes to accumulate that much wealth. Huh. Which sounds like a really great premise. Like, she knows what she wants. She's thinking about the future. And she's like, you know, how much money do I need to live comfortably in retirement? I should use my ability to go into this world full of fantastic riches for practical and beneficial means for myself. And I can dig that. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds pretty interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. And then the first one of Harem Royale, When the Game Ends, is going to be released on January 7th, 2019. And this is about just a regular everyday high school student who likes light novels, at porn games, fantasizing about the girls in the class. And then one day he walks home from school and he inexplicably releases a demon from a steel bottle. And the demon won't rest until her debt is repaid. And so... She cries out, now begins the lovey-dovey harem royale. And she casts the curious magic. And so basically the guy becomes a harem protagonist. And it, his life is a love comedy full of shenanigans with four girls in his school vying for his protection. But actually, unbeknownst to him, the four girls are actually in the midst of a horrific survival game under the threat of debt and eternal character torture and whoever fails to capture his heart is going to be confined to the depths of hell and killed ad infinitum who will survive who will thrive who will meet the demise this sounds like a very ryukishio stone premise considering that they are the creator of Higarashi. so crazy girls having to murder each other and getting paranoid and uh go everyone going crazy is totally in mine with uh, what Higurashi was all about. Mm, I was going to say, that took a very dark turn, and I'm kind of all about it. Oh yeah, like the dark turn makes it interesting, really interesting. And I hope the story is really more about those girls and their like horrific struggle to try and survive by convincing this stupid guy to fall in love <laughs> with them so that they don't go to hell more so that it's focused on the perspective of the guy who sounds like completely uninteresting and not very likable but like like the the girls trying to fucking seduce them so that they don't go to hell now that's a fun interesting story yeah that's that's definitely a neat little twist on um on the usual harem kind of story definitely makes me interested in checking it out yeah, Ryukoshi 07 is really good playing with uh, harem and romantic comedy tropes and twisting them into horror. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, that that's probably. I mean, they're they're both pretty good. Um, but I think think the latter is probably the one I would most likely check out first. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, interesting stuff from Soul Press. I can't wait to see what else they pick up. Uh, but uh, that's really about it for licensing news. Not a lot this week, but uh, we're just going to move on to some, um, you know, some some other pieces of news here. Uh, the first being that uh, Hajime Isayama's basically Attack on Titan prototype, uh, Humanity vs. Giants, has been released uh, digitally for free on Kodansha's magazine debut website. 
Now, for those who don't know, uh, Humanity vs. Giants, or Humanity vs. Titan, whatever you want to call it, was basically a one-shot that uh, Isayama originally uh, submitted for uh, basically the Weekly Shonen Jump, but was pretty much ultimately rejected. And, uh, you know, if you kind of skim through the one-shot, you can kind of maybe take a guess as to why. Um, it's uh, definitely, I don't know, like, I... I kind of I can't really imagine this something like this running and jump. It's very uh very gory, very very scary. But uh apparently after that he had submitted it as a piece to Kodansha's Magazine Grand Prix contest in 2006 where it basically won the Fine Work Award. Um so I'm guessing obviously from there, you know, they picked it up for a series at some other point and then we have the hit known as Attack on Titan today, but Basically, if you want to see where Attack on Titan kind of got its start, you know you can uh, you can kind of check out this prototype one shot on magazine debut. We'll uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. But uh, yeah, um, Lum, have you kind of checked this out at all? I actually have not flipped through it yet. Mm. It's um it's interesting. Obviously, it's in Japanese, so I I can't really understand a lot of what's going on, but. Uh, I don't know, like, I remember, like, a few years ago, I had read a few volumes of Attack on Titan, and I was kind of, uh, like, really the only thing about Attack on Titan that, like, as far as the manga goes, that kind of turns me off is Isayama's art. Yeah, now I'm flipping through it, and yes, this art is very rough. It is, but it's still, I don't know, like, Isayama has this thing where, like, uh, some, some parts of his series look really rough, but but I also think that kind of contributes to like sort of the atmosphere of a series as well. Like yeah. his 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 manga is kind of interesting um, in that sense. It communicates a sense of raw energy for sure. But you can tell this was made when he was younger and he was still kind of honing his craft because this is more like of a sketchy kind of quality. It's akin to what you would see in like a Tagashi's work when he was getting tired and stuff but the difference is i think that with tagashi he has like a great understanding of like construction and and and, and form and anatomy and stuff i think that Izayama was still developing these skills so this definitely does not look very polished yet it looks like definitely a work in progress so i can see why jump didn't pick this up because for the standards that Shonen Jump has, I can see that this would come across as more amateurish and not something that is ready to be published in a professional publication. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really neat that we have the opportunity to kind of you know check out Isayama's early works. Um, I really hope that actually that maybe Karancha picks this up and maybe translates this into English or something. Yeah, hopefully it gets included in a volume of Attack and Titan, and they translate it. Or they could do what, um, I believe it was Seven Seas, who, I think they've picked up, like, one-shots from, uh, from the author of, uh, Monster Musume, and they've just released those digitally. I kind of hope maybe Kanacha does the same thing. Yeah, that'd be cool as well. I I'd be surprised if they didn't at least consider it, I mean, considering how, I mean, Attack on Titan is still a pretty big property, so I'd pay to check it out, honestly. Yeah, I would like to hear what they're saying. I'm sure Wheelord could at least read the words, if he, even if he didn't understand them, because he knows katakana and hmm. some kanji now. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, 
but no, yeah, that's that's definitely a really cool thing that we have access to. Like I said, we'll we'll leave links in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, check it out. Yeah, it's a lo- nice little look back at the prototype of Attack and Titan, where clearly there was some different ideas that was going on. Like some guy has a flame sword, <laughs> and so there are all sorts of different powers that are different from the streety maneuver gear later in the series. So it's very interesting to check out to see like how the concept evolved from this prototype version to the final version we know and ha- either love or don't depending on who you are yeah but another very popular series from the magazine has some news in that the flowers of evil is getting a live action film in 2019 in commemoration of its 10th anniversary oh wow nice so this is a manga by Shuzo Oshimi that was about a kid who kind of was going through this edgy, angsty teenage phase. You know, he's like, oh, I'm so into Baudelaire and the flowers of evil and all that stuff. And then he falls in love with a, a girl who is also edgy and angsty. And then they, you know, kind of get into like a big scandal and stuff. And so then this girl like wants to nurture what this young Charles Baudelaire hides. And so a bunch of like a uh, dark, twisted little things happen. I haven't read the series, but I've heard it described and it sounds very interesting. So I do want to check it out for myself sometime. The anime adaptation that was made for it had a mixed reception because of the use of rotoscoping in it. But I remember I that. Yeah, that's the real effect results a part of its charm. Mm-hmm. from the people who did enjoy it so it there was it was critically praised but there were also some people who did not care for it but regardless the film is going to be made by ntt pala you're going to be directed by noboru gochi who has also directed works such as the machine girl yami shibai and the world yami Izukan, and it's going to be written by mario kata who is one of the most famous anime writers, having written Anohana, Anthem of the Heart, and Makia, which is one of my favorite anime films of all time. So, yeah, uh, Phantom Film is going to be in charge of the film's production, and Kadokawa Daya Studio is handling the distribution and publicity. So, I'm interested to see how this turns out. I don't know much about the director, but Mara Okada is a big name to have on this project. So hopefully we will see it out over here in an official release. Mm, I need to check out more works from uh, Oshimi. Um, aren't you a fan of happiness? I am. I really like happiness. I haven't read it since uh, the fourth volume or so, but yeah, I really enjoy that series. And I intend to check out more of the works, including Flowers of Evil. Hmm. To definitely be something we can consider for uh, next Halloween. <laughs> uh I don't know. Speaking of Halloween, I don't know. Uh, that's probably the best segue I could come up with. I don't know. It has nothing to well, do with Halloween. Well, this is another exciting adaptation of a very popular manga. There we go. You're better at those than I am. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, recently we talked about on the show about how uh, Q Hayashida's Dorohe Doro manga has ended. It has come to a conclusion at uh, 23 volumes. Uh, it'll eventually be released all in English via Viz Media. But it looks like, apparently, uh, just because the manga ended doesn't mean the franchise is over, apparently, because uh, it's getting a TV anime uh, that was basically uh, recently announced in the December issue of Monthly Shonen Sunday. 
and it will be coming this 2019. In time for its 20th anniversary. There's there's no other info on the anime at this time just yet. I'm sure we'll get more info uh, in the coming months. Uh, but apparently, like, this won't be the only announcement for Dorohedoro. Apparently, there's just a whole slew of announcements that are going to be coming for the series, you know, that aren't just an anime. So I'm interested in seeing uh, what also gets announced for the series. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see Dorohedoro get a revival in popularity and now the possibility of more widespread exposure through the anime. This is a series that I know is very beloved by Anisha fans, but now hopefully this will sh- anime will shine more attention on it. But um, but no, yeah, I, I was I was like just thinking the other day, like, man, it'd be kind of cool if Doro Hedro got an anime, and then it happened. <laughs> <laughs> now let's discuss some Dragon Ball news, and first up, we've got announcement of. Some transformations that will be made available in Jump Force, and that is the ability to play as Super Saiyan God forms of Vegeta and Goku, as well as Golden Frieza. And I'm not too keen on the models. Like, again, with the character models in this game, like... I think they're too over-detailed and too realistically lit in a way that makes them look uncanny valley. So, I mean, Golden Frieza looks super dull and drab. Like, he looks bronze, not golden, you know? So, I don't necessarily like the aesthetic of it, but the transformations are available in the game. But what we really want is more characters. So hopefully we'll get some more announcements soon because there's only a few months left before launch date. But we will see. But we have more Dragon Ball news to talk about because recently, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Shonen Jump as well as the upcoming Dragon Ball Super movie, Shueisha published a special book on November 5th with illustrations from throughout the Dragon Ball series, and it also contained the results of a fan poll deciding what were the top 10 moments from the manga. So let's count them down. At number 10, we have Goodbye Dragon World, the ending of the Boo Saga and the original Dragon Ball series. At number 9, we have The First Wish Made to Shenron, Emperor Pilaf using the Dragon Balls to try and take over the world, but being interrupted by Oolong who wished for panties, foiling Pilaf's scheme. At number 8, we have Goku awakening to Super Saiyan when Frieza kills Krillin, and Goku believing Krillin can no longer be resurrected by the Dragon Balls, going into a fit of fury and achieving Super Saiyan for the very first time. At number 7, we have Gotenks versus Majin Buu, when Gotenks fights Buu with a mixture of brute strength and childish tricks. At number 6, we have Goku versus Piccolo Jr., where Goku fights Piccolo Jr. in the 23rd Martial Arts Budokai Tournament Finals. That fight serving as the climax for the Dragon Ball Child Saga, as they put it in quotations. And number five, we have Goku versus King Piccolo, where Goku's final stand against King Piccolo happened. At number four, we have Super Vegito versus Majin Buu, 
where Vegito, of course, fights Majin Buu, and all sorts of shenanigans happen in that fight, like Vegito being turned into candy and fighting Buu. Then at number three, we have Goku, Gohan, and Krillin's fight against Vegeta. The desperate battle that was only won when Goku, Gohan, and Krillin worked together to finally put Vegeta down for the couch. At number two, we have Gohan versus Cell, where Goku sacrificed his life in the battle with Cell. All the other Z fighters are either fallen or are ineffectual. So only Gohan, battered and bruised, has to tap into strength he doesn't even know he has in order to save the world and take him out in the father-son Kamehameha. And then at number one, we have the final battle between Frieza and Goku, the infinitely long fight between Goku and Frieza that spanned dozens of chapters in anime episodes and the climax was a standout moment showing Goku's desire to spare Frieza's life right to the very end. So some big moments that fans have chosen as their favorites. Mm, I, I think I definitely agree with like most of the top five like those those seem like a lot of fights and moments that I I feel like I see a lot of fans like bring up a lot from time to time. Um, to me, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Vegito versus Boo. Not that I don't like it, but like one of the best moments in Dragon Ball. I'm not sure I agree with that just because it ultimately doesn't accomplish much when you think about it. Like it's cool that Goku and Vegeta fuse and all, but really it's just a means to an end to get inside Boo to rescue Gohan and Piccolo and Gotenks and stuff. And even then rescuing them uh, doesn't pay off because they have to leave them to die when Kid Boo blows up the planet. I mean, it, what they do does end up working out in the sense that by disconnecting them from Boo, they reverted him to Kid Boo, which is weaker and whatever. I mean, there were results, but like the actual fight itself was kind of inconsequential. But also, while it was kind of neat to see Vegito knock Boo around a bit, like and the of course the moment where he beats up Boo as candy is great. Like I don't think the fight as a whole was that memorable to me. I would not put that as like one of my favorite moments. Oh no, yeah, fights. not at all, not at all. Like when when I said I agreed with most of the top five, that was kind of the choice I was kind of singling out there because it's like I don't know, I like like to me, and I don't know if it's because like it's the arc I've revisited the least out of all of Dragon Ball, like. I don't know, like, a lot of the Boo arc doesn't really, like, stick out in my mind, aside from, like, Vegeta's big sacrifice and, um, you know, basically Satan saving the world. Like, those are, like, the two, in my mind, those are, like, the two biggest things to come out of that arc, or at least the moments that are, like, the most memorable to me, personally. Well, what's interesting is that their Boo arc is the most represented arc on this list, because there are three moments from the Boo arc on this list. And the only other arc that has more than one moment is the Freeze arc. Yeah, that, that that's that's really interesting to me. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm in a minority where it's just I don't hate the Boo arc. I just I just don't have as much attachment to it as I do like the rest of the series. I personally really love the Boo arc, but they definitely didn't show choose the moments that I really loved from the Boo arc for this list. Like, I enjoy Gotenks versus Majibu. I enjoy the fight with Jito versus Boo. 
But, you know, those are good moments, but those aren't, like, the same kind of moments. Like, it's Vegeta sacrifice or Vegeta, you know, realizing or, or accepting that Goku is just stronger with them and ha- going, you know, making peace with that. You know, that great moment of introspection for him. So, there are a lot of great moments in the Boo arc and a lot of great fights, too. So these aren't necessarily the moments I I find my favorite, but they are iconic moments for the fandom I know. I'm actually surprised that Gotenks vs. Boo ranks higher than Goku Awakening to Super Saiyan. I feel that would have been higher. I'm surprised that it isn't higher. I feel so sorry for Yajirobe because he totally like doesn't get mentioned at all in number three. Yeah, it's true. They kind of forgot how pivotal Yajirobe was in that fight. If he didn't cut off Vegeta's tail... They would have been screwed. Yajirobe is the real hero of that arc. <laughs> or more accurately, they would have been crushed. But yeah, Yajirobe, that was probably the most useful he has ever been in the series. And never again. <laughs> no, never again. I mean, I guess in the anime version of the Future Trunks arc, he did stuff, but not that much. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's there and that's all that matters, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... I, I think I agree with at least, like, half of this list. Like, the, there are moments on this list that, you know, like, personally, I I really like the fights with King Piccolo and then Piccolo Jr. Uh, those are actually some of my favorite fights. Piccolo Jr. especially is, like, like at the time, is, like, probably one of the most brutal fights in Dragon Ball, I think. Like, they really just go at it with each other. Both Piccolo fights are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Probably some of the most intense fights in the series, in my opinion. Yeah, and they both have very satisfying victories because of how desperate the struggle was and how meaningful the victory was. Like Goku defeating Piccolo, avenging his fallen misfriend and mentor was a really powerful moment. And then Goku beating Piccolo Jr. at the finals of the World Martial Arts Tournament and that being his first tournament victory, like the moment where he is declared the world's strongest is a big culmination of his character up till that point. So, Yeah, no. Um, like I said, I, I agree with at least like half of this list, I think, are moments I would have picked personally. Uh, some of the others definitely wouldn't be my first choice, but I could maybe see, I, I could see why people would choose them. Everyone has their own personal favorites. I just think it's interesting to see what a lot of fans generally find to be their favorites. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, inter- interesting list overall. Mm-hmm. And now we can go and talk about more Akira Toriyama manga because we are going to dive into the desert and endure the brutal, brutal sun, even though it's winter and we're freezing our toes off. And we're going to try and imagine warmer times, happier times, by discussing Sandland. Sandland is the story of the son of the devil Beelzebub, who lives in a post-apocalyptic future where humanity has killed its forests and all most of the population it seems through a series of brutal wars and worst of all they because of the their wars they have dried up the only water source that was in the desert and uh, i also neglected to mention the natural disasters also destroyed most of the world so yeah but anyway the river dried up but the king i guess the only monarch left alive in the world has the only water supply and so he controls the citizens 
by controlling the only known water source and by selling water to people through water bottles and through like rations that they have to pay exuberant prices for. And so Beelzebub and his gang of demons, they go around and steal water from the king and they give it out to villagers, but they also hoard it for themselves mostly and Beelzebub just gives water to humans because he's a nice guy. But, and that's their life, basically, and it isn't very interesting, or it sucks for them. But then, one day, Sheriff Rao, an old uh, ex-military guy, comes to Beelzebub with a proposition. He has noticed that water finches have been migrating to the north of the desert, and he believes, because of that, they are going to the south, where there is a small lake with fish that keeps them alive that has kept them from going extinct so there must be a water source and so because the journey is too treacherous for a human to go alone he asks for the help of Beelzebub and uh, his fellow demons and to sweeten the deal he gives them a playstation 6 with dragon quest 13 (laughs) which you know, we're only on the PlayStation 4, and Dragon Quest Eleven just came out. Uh-oh. So, I guess there's only going to be one Dragon Quest on uh, PlayStation 5, and only and the next turn we'll have to wait for PlayStation 6. But Or maybe it's just a port of PlayStation, uh, Dragon Quest Thirteen for PlayStation 6. Regardless, that, that convinces Beelzebub to help Sheriff Rao, and so they head off on their journey. Eventually, their car gets destroyed by bandits, so they steal a tank. And by stealing a tank from the military, they get uh, hunted down by the military. And then they uncover some more secrets and conspiracies about why the world came out the way it is. And how the government is keeping the water from the people through shady means. And how they used uh, pretenses to exterminate people. Uh, utter and commit genocide against other people. I guess into some uh, heavy territory that, of course, Toriyama doesn't dwell on too much because, you know, it's Toriyama. He's not, he doesn't go into that dark kind of stuff. But, you know, instead, uh, it's just like a fun kind of adventure tale where these characters get into tangles with uh, the military commanded by General R.A. and General Zo. But, yeah, so... It's just an adventure where they get into tangles with the military and uh, a group called the Swimmers. With a joke being that they're swimmers, but they have no water water to swim in. So they're wearing these weird skin suits for no reason. But yeah, and eventually they find the source of the water that the king and General Zua is hoarding. They tear it down the dam. They get into a fight with an insect man. And they return the water to the people of the desert. And all is that ends well. And that's the story of Sandland. Yeah, so uh, this was actually my first time reading Sandland. I had been meaning to read it for a while. I um, I actually used to own a physical copy of Sandland. You owned a physical copy, but you hadn't read it? I own a lot of physical manga that I still haven't gotten to because I'm just like that. Um, Yeah, I just never really got to it. I feel I'm a little ashamed of myself because... Um, I think I started reading it, like, years ago, and I just never got back to it. Um, so this was my first time, like, actually finishing it. And uh, I used to have a physical copy, but, um, you know, I basically had to give it away because I 
was giving away a lot of my books at the time because I needed some extra money, and I was like, "I'm am I am I going to get to this? Probably not." So I, I I gave it away kind of reluctantly, and so I had to buy a digital copy to read for the podcast today. Which thankfully you can buy it digitally via uh, Viz, and we'll leave links in the show notes and whatnot. But uh, yeah, so this was my first time reading it. Um, as far as like a lot of like post Dragon Ball Toriyama stuff, um. As far as, like, everything released officially, I think I've read all of his stuff at this point. Like, let's see, uh, you know, Sandland, Kawa, um, Jack with the Galactic Patrolman. Um, I've read what little Nekomajin we've got over here, along with the stuff we haven't gotten, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, there, there are tons of, like, unlicensed Toriyama titles that still haven't, obviously, seen an English release, which I think is kind of a shame i really hope viz maybe gets to more of those because i would i would love to read more of toriyama's like shorter works because uh, they're usually pretty interesting um but no yeah as far as sandland goes um i don't know if i have like a lot to say about it other than like it was a nice solid story with a few like twists and turns here and there that i really wasn't expecting um i guess like the lore of sandland is actually kind of interesting as far as like you know, how the world came to be uh, the way it is. And like, you know, Ashiba's kind of backstory is really interesting. And, you know, the, like the more we learn about him and how he's basically not really who he seems, we, you know, learn about his real identity. Like all that stuff is really interesting. Um, e even even a little development here and there with some of the side characters like uh, General R or Are. I don't know how you really pronounce his name. I think it's just R because there's no accent over the E. Probably. Um, yeah, and how he kind of, how he, how he has even a little development, because, you know, it turns out that, uh, you know, his father was a cottony, uh, genocide that happened 30 years ago, and, uh, how he basically turns against the government and whatnot. Um, so, a lot, a lot of conspiracy going around that I thought was really interesting to kind of learn about. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just thought it was really good. Like, if you're listening to this and you want more Toriyama stuff and you haven't read Sandland, I would definitely give it a recommendation. This is a great ex uh, showcase of a lot of Toriyama's strength, both as an artist and as a writer. The genesis of this story was that it was supposed to be a short, simple manga about an old man and a tank, which he made for his own personal enjoyment. But because the tank was harder to draw than he expected, and he wanted to draw it all himself... He came to regret doing it, but he plotted out to the story to the end, and he went through with it, drawing the entire 14-chapter short story that uh, we know and love now. And I think what's great about this being a self-contained one-volume work is that it allows Toriyama to really plot it tightly in a way that is distinct from kind of the chaotic plotting of Dragon Ball, where... He didn't know where his story was going in advance, so it goes to all sorts of different crazy places. But here, you definitely get a sense that he knew where he wanted to take this story and the destination he wanted to reach. And so every chapter is placed very deliberately and tells quite a uh, compelling and self-contained story while still leaving room in the story for fun diversions, like fights with that uh, kiss-looking biker gang in the desert or like more slender gayer versions of fist of the north star antagonists that, you, that kentra would just run across in the desert uh and then the swimmers just 
the idea of there being this gang called the swimmers who wear swimsuits and goggles and caps in the desert, even though there's no water for them to actually swim in. And none of them have actually done any actual swimming in their real lives, except for maybe Papa, their leader. The idea of these gag characters just being in there, like to cause some fun little havoc is also really amusing too. So he sprinkles in a lot of nice humorous diversions into the story while still keeping it focused on this overarching plot about finding this mysterious lake and then kind of unraveling the conspiracy of why there is no water in Sandland anymore. Like the true secret about how the king is hoarding the water and then who's really behind the scheme, behind the king in General Zoe and his greedy machinations. And Toriyama is able to communicate so much characterization and character, even just through character design. Just the idea that General Zoe is so greedy to cling to his life that he has turned himself into a cyborg and is in this robotic kind of life support system, keeping himself alive for the sheer greed of it. And uh, exploiting other people. Like he's this withered old man who can't move around except inside this giant bulbous robotic suit. But he sees fit to like feed on the wealth of the poor. And uh, continue to sustain himself that way when people are di- when people are dying and he continues to live on even though he's becoming older and decrepit. So there's a lot of characterization that he communicates through that. And also, there's this great kind of commentary on how capitalism becomes fascism when the government controls the resources that the people need to live. And how they are basically forcing them to pay the government water. So the rich get rich, the poor get poorer. And they are stuck in the cycle where they have to be obey and be complicit because without this water, they will die because there's no other way to get water. So Toriyama has this really weird accidental way of like addressing really kind of dark and complex ideas and then exploring them in a story that is full of light humor and fun adventure. And it's just generally lighthearted and optimistic in tone. Even though, again, it also touches on issues of, like, committing genocide for the control of resources, which is like, you know, this was written in 2000, but this would almost read as a commentary on the Iraq War with the way, like, uh, they drop a bomb on the peachy people who was creating a way of, you know, a self-sustaining water machine. You know, they were trying to create more water, but, like, the king, like, lied to the people and said, and to his troops and said, oh, the peachy people are creating this weapon of mass destruction, so we have to wipe them out. And then they used uh, this, the war against peachy people as a pretense to not get rid of, only get rid of them and their, you know, water supply machine that would have threatened the king's uh, monopoly on the water supply, but also get rid of the dissenters of General Zoe's, like, brutal, despotic tactics and murderous tactics, you know. So by trying to wipe out, you know, Sheev and his entire battalion of dissenters, basically wiping out, like, the utter faction in the military. So a lot of dark shit in here but yeah 
there's a lot of ideas in this, like this insect man thing, like that, this biological engineering kind of thing that pops up towards the end that just comes up. It's, it's kind of random, but it's also kind of, it just displays the cruelty of General Zoe that they create artificial life and treat it so cruelly and carelessly. Like it's just this, he treats this thing as a weapon and then plants a bomb in them. And when it can't fight anymore, like Beelzebub tries to reach out to it and tries to like get them to just stop the fight. But then General Zoe just blows up the Insect Man and just is another display of like his cruelty. So lots and lots of ideas in here that I just find really interesting. Yeah. I do want to agree with you about how you mentioned uh, Toriyama's ability to really characterize characters in really like simple ways, like you know, like not just through character design, but even through like just little tiny bits of dialogue here and there, like uh, with with General R. Um, you know, like it could have been so easy for him to just be like, you know, your typical like no name crony or whatever that gets one shotted. But like, I was really surprised in how much uh development he kind of received and how he actually really goes through an arc of like i said finding out that his father was you know uh involved in this genocide and he was one of the people obviously you know killed because of general zoe's actions and whatnot and how he kind of you know starts to kind of change his outlook and perspective on the military from there like just just a simple like little moment of doubt where like he's like hey can i ask the king something like uh about my father or whatever, and General Zell basically just shuts him down. No, that's a great moment because uh, he asks the king. He does ask the king, and he questions him about like his and uh, Zoe's plan to de- destroy the Peachy people and stuff. And the oh, yeah, king's right, response right. is that, "What? What is that guy telling you? That was all Zoe's plan, not mine." Basically, admitting that yes, that was the actual thing. That that conspiracy was true. I thought that was a really good way of showing that, like, okay, this guy isn't just, like, this guy isn't just, like, a crony. Like, he actually has, like, he felt like a real person to me. Like, he felt like an actual character at that point. And I was I was really surprised to see that, again, he actually goes through an arc. And I thought that was pretty satisfying, actually, uh, him eventually becoming an ally to our main group of characters here. That and uh, e- even, uh, even uh, the swimmers... Uh, kind of have a little humanity here and there. What with uh, who I'm assuming uh, is their father, grand grandfather. I, they call I forget. Him Papa. At the very least. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, during like after his little skirmish with Beelzebub, how he mentions how like you know, hey, it's funny that uh, you know, oh, we call ourselves the swimmers, but like my sons have never like actually swam, and that that really just kind of shows me like he he wants his sons to be able to experience you know, actually swimming in water like he you know it's it's something that he wants for his family like he cares about his sons in a way and mm-hmm. i thought that little exchange really like i really showed that like he's actually you know he's a good father he cares about his family and actually maybe kind of feel for him there are a lot of very uh likable characters and uh Toriyama's very good at like creating these characters. They're very simple characters, but he's able to do very quick but very enjoyable character arcs within the span of just a single volume story. He's really good at communicating a lot about a character with very little. I really love the moment with uh, General Shiva, where he is basically relaying information to uh, Beelzebub and 
Sheriff Rao after, you know, confirming that the king was responsible for the genocide and lying to the people and stuff. And he's like, pretends that he's, he turns on the transmission radio and he's just talking to himself about like, uh, where the water supply, king's water supply is and telling basically Sheriff Rao where, where it is. And uh, why he's helping them. And then Sheriff Rao responds like, Now I'll talk to myself too. And there's still noble hearts in the king's army. Today I saw hope for Sandland and I made my spirit soar my tanks. I just thought that was a great exchange. Like them pretending they're talking to themselves. and uh, But communicating like information about like where the king's water source is. And then like this moment of solidarity of like, you know, there's still good people in this world. I, I also really like Toriyama's kind of, like, dry sense of humor that he has in a lot of his later works, where, like, you know, I, I didn't think Beelzebub was, like, particularly, like, funny, per se. Like, there were some moments of comedy, but it was a mostly a pretty, like, straightforward adventure story. But uh, I think probably my favorite joke in uh, in Sandland is where um, Thief wants to go into the nearby village and uh, steal, what is it, a car, a tank? I forget which it is. But um, he, he decides to dress up as Santa so that he doesn't, like, <laughs> scare the villagers. Yeah. <laughs> I just really love that. Who are you supposed to be? Oh, well, I'm Santa Claus. I'm like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I really like... I really like Toriyama's dry sense of humor as far as that goes, because I feel like, I mean, I, I feel like we, uh, like, later we have a lot of that in Jack with the Galactic Patrol, man, but uh, it's unfortunate we didn't get, like, a ton of those moments here, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of good humor just springing us throughout. I mean, like, he has characters as swimmers that have a lot of really good gags. Yeah. And then Thief and Beelzebub do have some good comedy moments. That's true. But, no, yeah, like, um... Man, it, like this made me just really. This makes me really just want to read more Toriyama stuff, and just in general. Yeah, I mean, he is just a wellspring of creativity. Like the designs in this, both the character designs and the mechanical designs, are just really imaginative. Like the design of the tank that the gang drives around in is really unique looking, and it seems like he paid a lot of attention to detail, like. To describe my reading experience with Sandland uh, for this podcast, I went back and read it through the Shonen Jump issues it was originally published in. Really? Sandland wow. was one of the debut titles in the North American Shonen Jump, running from the first issues through its 11th issue. So it was a real treat to read Sandlands through the original Shonen Jump issues because the pages are just so big that you can really take the time to appreciate all the details in Toriyama's art. And it just is a beautiful sight to read on that big pages. But you can you really see uh, like how Toriyama has broken down his designs and paid attention to like where things are. And there's a page in the Shonen Jump issues that is not included in the graphic novels that is then detailing like the breakdown of the kank, like labeling like all the parts in it and uh, just how everything is constructed and what they're for. And that's really cool that, you know, you can make out all of these things that is an essential part of the tank's design and that Toriyama thought about. I wish that that kind of information was included in the graphic novel itself, but that's just another 
great reason to like hunt down this original Shonen Jones. I guess there's a lot of like great tidbits in there that I wish was included in their graphic novel. Like they had this great uh, kind of a sketch gag page kind of thing, where it's like uh, kind of like a I don't know what you call them, like an editorial kind of like listicle where it's like hey if you were going through a joyride in a hot desolate desert with inadequate supplies uh here's what the desert has in store for you and it's like the story of just it, it, the worst thing after worst thing happening to you in the <laughs> desert so it starts out that you have car trouble and your because your engine overheats and so oh no problem i'll just walk but then when you walk you get heat stroke after 15 minutes <laughs> and uh your body temperature skyrockets and you become dizzy and confused and then in your dizziness and confusion you trip and fall on a crucifixion torn strub and get a legal spike in your eye and then you walk blindly into a sag or a cactus and rolled out a sand dune and then while you're lying on the ground weeping a tarantula hawk wasp flies into your shorts and bites you on the private and even the wasp is not deadly but its sting is one of the most painful in the world and then you try and scream but your throat is so dry from thirst that it oh you can only emit a pathetic croaking noise and then you try to go to find a shady spot the rest so you can just wait for the wasp bite to stop burning but the cozy environment of your boot attracts a bark scorpion and so when you reinsert your foot into your boots it frightens the scorpion and it injects poison into your big toe and then when you ride on the ground from the sting you will uncover a reclusive coral snake that peacefully was sleeping under the rocks and the snake plunges its fangs into your calf and hangs from your leg as its venom slowly drips into you the wound and then as the poison works your way through the body you start the panic but then you see a pool of crystal water in the distance and just as you are about to rescue your uh just about your about to wrap your arms around your rescuer in a grateful hug, you realize it's just another cactus. And then, when you've given up hope, you you spot another person in the distance, but you dismiss it as an mirage. But, unfortunately, it's a ninja, and the ninja throws blinding powder in your face and chops up your head. (laughs) And then then it concludes with, that's about it. Remember to wear bright-colored, breathable clothing and enjoy your trip to the desert. And... That is just a hilarious story. And that the, those are kind of gems are why I love the original Shonen Jump issues, that they include funny editorials like this. Kudos <laughs> to whoever wrote it. I, I couldn't find, like, who specifically wrote it. But, wow. yeah, just stuff like this was great. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those original Shonen Jump issues include a lot of great, like, tidbits about the series and, like, fun observations about the series that just make the reading experience of it like all the more fun like a list of top 10 future video games a mailbag where they answer letters as the character of teeth answering what level of spf production do the swimmers use to maintain their ghostly white complexions and they and they answer actually jimmy the swimmers white complexions are the result of scar tissue forming on every square inch of their bodies like (laughs) 
God, the sense of humor, like those original Shonen Jump crew had and all the fun editorials they made are such great. But to speak about the series itself, like, yeah, the designs are amazing. Like, I really like the Prince's design, Beelzebub's design. You know, he has what looks like hair growing off his head, but it's like the same color of his body. So you could just read that as maybe it's like more horns, just just hair like horns. And it's a really nice, simple design as well that's just it looks he looks very impish and very mischievous and that kind of believes the heart of gold that he actually has that makes him kind of a very compelling shonen hero and then a lot of the characters have like design choices that really communicate their sense of interiority but also contrast with an aspect of their personality as well like, Teeth looks like, you know, kind of like this wise old man, but he's a total goofball, for instance. It, it's a shame that I, I think that's like the one thing that I thought was kind of a bummer about Sandland was that we didn't really get a chance to uh, hang out with uh, with the other demons. Yeah, uh, Beelzebub makes a promise. Oh, I'll summon you on our journey if we need run into any trouble. But then it's revealed by the end of the book that he doesn't actually have summoning powers. So all those demons from the first chapter, we don't see them until the last chapter, which is a shame because there are some cool ones like the centaur guy that he rides on in the first chapter, the weasel demon with the uh, sickles that, you know, has a great page where he takes out a guy's gun because holy water doesn't work on Japanese demons. Man, I, I was really expecting to see more of that demon in particular for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but I was... I was kind of disappointed that we we didn't get to he he didn't come on the journey he he, he could have been pretty cool, um yeah I think that's probably the only thing that I thought was a bummer really but you know the like, the joke at the end was still kind of funny where it's like I don't actually know I don't know summoning magic <laughs> <laughs> and they're teasing him about it too they're like saying oh prince this I definitely summon us on your journey and he's like oh shut up I know you know that I don't have summoning magic. So that, that that was kind of funny, but at the same time, you know what what could have been. Uh, see, uh, actually, that that'd be kind of cool to see, like, in a in a Kira Toriyama manga about like demons and yokai and whatnot. That'd be kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did make a manga like that. I mean, he made Kawa. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. I haven't read Kawa in a while. Which he made three years prior than this. Like uh, the original manga, Sandland, uh, was published in the Japanese Shonen Jump in. 2000 then in the english uh shonen jump in 2003 and kawa was published in the japanese shonen jump in uh 1997 oh wow i i didn't know it was that old huh okay because uh, the the art in kawa in particular for for some reason seems a lot more modern i'm not really sure how to describe it like it felt like something that could have came out in like the mid 2000s i'm surprised that's from the 90s actually i didn't know that I mean, it, you can definitely make that uh, mistake because it in the U.S. it came out in the mid-2000s. But yeah, also, Sandland does look more akin to Dragon Ball artwork than Kawa does, which has more of a different aesthetic because it has bolder outlines and more cutesier characters. Yeah, because I, th- like, I think it was made specifically like with children in mind. Like It kind of looks more like a, like a children's book almost. Yeah. Definitely, it seems skewed to more an even younger crowd, even though ostensibly both Sandlin and Kawa are for the same audience. 
Hmm, that is interesting. Um, but no, yeah, the Sandland, yeah, like I said, was basically the only like officially licensed Toriyama work that I hadn't already read at this point. Um, which which is a shame that I've kind of run out of Toriyama stuff to read officially, at least. Like, I'm really surprised that with like the popularity of Dragon Ball, that they don't release more Toriyama stuff. But I wonder if maybe like it's probably because maybe they don't do as well as Dragon Ball does. I guess I don't know. I have to wonder. It's a real shame because there is definitely stuff that they haven't translated from Toriyama that I would like to read. Like in a spotlight section in the English Shonen Jumps, they even note a few of his other works, including Akira Toriyama's Lousy Manga Laboratory, which he wrote in 1985, which is his kind of how to draw manga book, which I would really be interested in reading. And of course, there was Kajika, which was a one volume series that he did in 1998. And I'm surprised that has never come over here, too. Oh, I, th- I think the only other thing they, like, translated, I think, um, didn't Toriyama have a one-shot called Kintaro a few years ago? Yes, I believe that was translated and uh, was available digitally. Yeah, I remember that being available digitally in, a, in an issue of um, the Digital Shonen Jump. I don't think I have that issue, though. But no, yeah, I, I really hope that's fixed at some point, because I really do want to read more of his stuff. Yeah, I mean, Toriyama is just not into making manga as much as he used to. Sandland was his last work until Jocko the Galactic Patrolman. So that was a 13-year gap between like him drawing ma- a manga series. So who knows when the next time will come when he feels up for drawing a manga that isn't Dragon Ball related. Uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about Jack with the Galactic Patrolman at some point, because I, I personally have a lot of attachment to that. But uh, yeah, no, as far as Sandland goes, like I said, it, it, was, it was very solid, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've read Sandland, but because it's such a short work, I've definitely read it a few times over the years. And it's a really so- enjoyable book and one of his best uh, one-volume works that I've read. It's really hard to compare it against the scope of Dragon Ball and like the length and variety of stories of Dr. Slump. But as a single-volume cohesive work, it stands really well on its own. And it leaves the itself a lot of potential for expansion into an even longer story and who knows what could have happened if it had gone longer i think that maybe it could have had even more potential to surpass dragon ball but and nonetheless like just as a self-contained work it is really really good so speaking of Dragon Ball connections, uh, we should definitely point out that, yes, Beelzebub's father, Lucifer, does bear a striking resemblance to Deborah. Yeah. Especially in his face, but I definitely would not assume it is the same character from Dragon Ball. Even the English Shonen Jumps, they get a question about that in one of the early issues, and the answer, hmm, well, they look similar, but if you actually look at him, like, his horns are really different, and really, even though his, like, face mustache is different, like, his whole general aesthetic, it is distinct from Deborah in certain ways, so. Um, but I guess, is there anything else we want to talk about as far as Sandland goes, or I think that might be about it? I think we covered a lot of ground with the series, and I just wish I had more structured notes so I didn't, like, ramble into, like, various tangents and stuff. But 
there is a lot of fun to be had with this manga, and I highly encourage you to check it out yourself if you're a Kira Toriyama fan or just want a nice, solid, short volume work to read. Yeah, I, it definitely gets my recommendation. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, again, we'll leave links in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, purchase their copy of Sandland. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to go into our community shoutouts for the week. And speaking of Sandland, our good friend Maxi Bernard covered the series on his original run of Friendship After Victory, where he considered it Toriyama's best manga he has written, even more than Dragon Ball and Dr. Slump. And he gave great explanations of why he enjoyed it so much and great appraisals of its art and the storytelling Toriyama displays. And it's a great classic episode of Friendship After Victory. And one of my favorite episodes of Friendship After Victory. And I always enjoyed Maxie's old Friendship After Victory podcast. And thankfully, he started them up again. And I know, Colton, that this is your community shout out of the week. Yeah, so, um, and uh, forgive me for being indulgent because I know we've had Maxie on the show a lot. But again, that's also because... He is virtually our third or fourth co-host, depending on how you count V-Lord. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, like, you know... Uh, Lum and I really enjoy his stuff. Um, you know, I, I especially like I've I've been into Maxi's podcast for oh, I want to say since 2013. Um, like I think right around I think that was the same year I started podcasting in general. Um, you know, I've talked about before how like you know the One Piece podcast was kind of the first podcast I ever listened to, and you know they've definitely inspired me as well. But uh, you know, uh, Friendship Ever Victory is kind of special to me in that like. Uh, I think at the time, like, you know, I was obviously a Shonen Jump fan at that point, but like, I had never really like run into a Shonen Jump podcast at that point. Um, I don't know if the official Shonen Jump podcast existed at that point. It it either like just started or it ha- had already existed. I don't remember, but uh, if it did, I probably wasn't aware of it at the time. So, um, you know, I remember thinking to myself. Oh well, you know I love Shonen Jump. Are there any Shonen Jump podcasts I can listen to? And I, I think I might have listened to like one or two that like I wasn't really super into personally. And uh, like I think Friendship After Victory was like the first one I listened to, and uh, it was such a different format of a podcast than what I was used to. Like I hadn't really listened to a lot of like solo podcasts at that point because it's you know a lot of the original Friendship After Victory episodes are basically just Maxi kind of solo talking about his favorite series and stuff and uh you know at that time i think uh obviously the first episode he did was about dragon ball and i think one of the other one like i've listened to his yu yu Hakusho podcast his kanika man podcast like there were still a lot of series in jump that i hadn't read at the time like i hadn't read yu yu Hakusho at the time so like uh listening to maxi kind of talk about it a little bit was really interesting like and you know the the like the episodes I really enjoyed the most, which is something I really like doing for this show with Maxi nowadays, is uh you know when he talked about uh, when he talks about you know stuff that was canceled in Jump, um, I always thought those those episodes were the most interesting to me because obviously a lot of canceled Jump stuff isn't going to see an English release over here or is even going to be scanned for the most part either. So it was really interesting to hear him talk about series that like. I could probably never, ever see an English of any sort. Um, so Maxi was basically my source for that kind of stuff. But in general, like, you know, Maxi's podcast was definitely an inspiration of mine to kind of like eventually start my own shows. Like, I really enjoyed his format and, you know, it just made me appreciate Show to Jump that much more, which is why 
I'm glad to say that since the last episode of the podcast, you know, that we had him on at least, uh, he's finally started releasing new episodes of Friendship at Victory. And, um, you know, um, I, I, I listened to that first episode at least like twice because I, I really enjoyed, uh, the editing he put into it. Um, like something about, uh, the new format for Friendship Ever Victory this time around compared to his old run of episodes. Like, I really think this, um, elite, like, like the experience that Maxi has had editing his show in the past couple of years here has really, like, has really helped him, like, kind of showcase not only his editing ability, but, like, uh, the, like, the choices he makes in certain edits, like, you know, sound effects and whatnot, uh, the little skits he does and whatnot, I think really, like, show off his personality super well and really show off his sense of humor. Like, the, the show doesn't just feel like another Shonen Jump podcast. Like, it, it feels like it's a good showcase of Maxi as a person, which I think is really interesting. Like, it's something I look for in podcast is, you know, how well you can kind of show off your personality in your show, which is something I, I like to try to do with a lot of my stuff. Uh, whether I succeed at that or not, I, I don't know. But, you know, that that's why I kind of really, I was really kind of gushing about Spiral Radio last episode, too, is because I thought... Not only was it well edited, but I think it also like you can you can kind of see Buggy's voice in that in that show. You can you can kind of see Maxie's voice in Friendship Ever Victory now, which I think is a big plus for the show. So, you know, like I, I could just sit here and kind of gush for another hour or two about, you know, Maxie's show. But like, you know, if you're a fan of Shonen Jump and you've enjoyed listening to Maxie on Manga Mavericks, like I think you really owe it to yourself to like really check out his not just his podcast, but, you know, just his blog in general, like, there's a reason we have him on the show, like, his stuff is really great, it's always interesting, and uh, we love showcasing it on the show, so just go listen to it if you haven't already. We'll we'll leave a link to the newest episode of his new run in the show notes. It was a great first episode of a new string of Friendship After Victory episodes. He covered the history of Shonen Jump in great detail and also why he loves the magazine and finds it so interesting and covers a lot of great topics. And he was able to weave some great humor into his script and it just flowed incredibly well and nicely. And I love a lot of Maxie's early podcasts, but definitely you can see that he's taken it to another level with his new run. And I'm looking forward to the next couple episodes of his new run and what he has in store with his Black Clover podcast and all the other podcasts that he has in the works that I know he's incredibly passionate about. And I'm looking forward to hearing what he's going to do with them. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, Lum, what, what, what's your community shout-out this week? My community shout-out this week is once again from Anime Feminist. And I know that the last three podcasts, my community shout-out has been something from on there. But I can't help it. They produce some great work, including this article from Stas Livra, a Russian uh, writer and artist who is currently studying in... Uh, the UK film studies and he is and uh, they, they wrote a uh, feature about uh, examining the portrayal of Jewish and Jewish coded characters in anime that covers a lot of interesting ground including like the history of Jew of the Jewish population in Japan and like the how Japan has uh, has uh, perceived and treated its Jewish population 
and then the depiction of historical real world uh, Jews in anime like uh, Fritz Lang and Full Metal Alchemist Conqueror of Shambhala and some of the messy portrayals that comes with those depictions like how Conqueror Shambhala you know portrayed Fritz Lang as like an XB of King Bradley who himself is supposed to be an XB of Hitler in the mainline universe of anime and so some messy connections that they make there and then uh, they explore like a history of Jewish characters in anime and manga, and there are very few. But they discuss characters like Benny from Black Lagoon. Uh, they discuss a message to Adolf, one of Osama Tezuka's manga that kind of explores the lives of two characters named Adolf, one Jewish, one German. Well, three, three Adolf. Well. Two fictional Adolfs and then Adolf Hitler. So one Jewish Adolf, one German Adolf, and then Hitler. And so the story like uh, explores kind of how, the history of like how kind of examines like how the persecution of Jews in Germany and in Japan uh, in World War Two and stuff, and the kind of how the friendship between the Jewish Adolf and the German Adolf is tested. And I read that series uh, quite a few years ago and really found it fascinating. Though, of course, as the article mentioned, there are some messy portrayals in that manga as well. But they also talk about characters that you can interpret as Jewish, like Spike Spiegel, and like how the historical origins of Jewish coding and uh like how that's represented in Japanese media and like whether and like whether you could make the case that Spike is an example of representation, intentional or accidental. And then of course they also address anti Semitism in anime, like the case of Angel Cop, where Jewish people are portrayed as being in a in charge of a conspiracy, planning to take over Japan and stuff. So they cover a lot of bases about Jewish representation in Japanese culture and in anime specifically. And I thought it was a really fascinating read and I highly recommend it. I love Anime Feminist for publishing articles exploring topics uh, about representation in anime and manga from a multi-sided way. And this is just another great piece to add to that uh, list of works that they've published. Mm, that sounds really interesting to be sure. Mm-hmm. And so those are our community shoutouts for this week. Links are in the description. And I think that about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumramiyasha on Twitter and as Lumramiyasha on Animation Revelation, AnyList, and wherever there is a Lumramiyasha, that is where you can find me. You can also read my occasional manga reviews on all-comic.com. All right, and uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Colton at SniperKing323. Uh, I do a few other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, um, which is unfortunately on a bit of an indefinite hiatus at this moment in time. But if you're a fan of Gintama and you want to hear a podcast discussing the uh, the old Viz Media release of Gintama, the manga in particular, we pretty much got your back. Uh, we still have a huge backlog of episodes that you can listen to over at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. You can also listen to One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.com. It's a show about Detective Conan, Case Closed, whatever you want to call it, that I host with my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast. If you're a fan of Conan, please go listen to that show. We cover a bit of the manga, essentially case by case, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of Conan, 
go listen to it. I really enjoyed recording that show. So again, you can find that at onepodcastprevails.com. Uh, but as for uh, all comic and manga mavericks and whatnot, uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks on alt-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, as well as mangamavericks.tumblr.com. Uh, both places are where you can get the latest updates on the podcast in, in general. Um, you also want to subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we essentially post uh, different news excerpts and uh, reviews and discussions from the show. Basically, just you know, par- parts of our podcast in general. Um, so, you know, sometimes even some exclusive content as well. So again, that's youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Um, if you want to email us anything and send us, uh, send us an email to the podcast, uh, what do you think of Akira, Akira Toriyama Sandland? Uh, what do you think about all the news we covered this week? Um, you know, email us anything about what you think of the podcast, anything you're reading, and we'll read it on the show. You can send those emails over to manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. It really helps the visibility of our show. So please do that if you so wish. Um, But that is going to be about it for this episode of Manga Mavericks. This has been episode 66. And we will see you guys next time for episode 67. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.